From Louisiana to Hawaii, Kentucky to California, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act will result in higher health care costs. To explain why, we hear from Thomas Phillipson, an economist at the University of Chicago. Congress is about to unleash 87,000 new IRS agents on middle-class taxpayers. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. That Inflation Reduction Act touts reducing the federal deficit by $300 billion, but the current Congress has added $2.4 trillion in debt. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine walks through the numbers. And the January 6th Inquisition is getting lots of news coverage, but the legacy news media stay silent on Hunter Biden's laptop. Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The deceptively named Inflation Reduction Act will actually result in higher health care costs. Why is that? For details, we turn to Thomas Phillipson. He is an economist at the University of Chicago and formerly served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors and for two years was acting chairman of that council. Thomas, welcome to American Radio Journal. Thomas, the Inflation Reduction Act, something I call the Inflation Acceleration Act, has a lot of components in it that are going to have very negative effects, including its impact on health care. So tell us why you think that this is going to ultimately be costly and reduce the quality of health care for Americans. I think the first thing people need to realize about this act is that what's been discussed about it is probably not as important as what has not been discussed, which is the health care provisions particularly the pharmaceutical provisions, because basically they will affect U.S. longevity, how long we've lived. And if you ask yourself, are you willing to give up a year of living to live in an inflation-free or marginally higher growth economy, most people would say no. So when economists value things that are related to the economy, value of living longer, it trumps everything else in terms of what people really value. So the Inflation Act is essentially hammering down on the pharmaceutical industry and reducing the incentives to innovate in that industry. And that, we have estimated, will lead to very large losses in longevity that, when you value them, swamps anything in terms of inflation or GDP effects. For example, conservative estimates of this yields effects of and uh, longevity loss is about 30 times as big as COVID has been to date in the U.S. Or if you value that using standard government metrics of how economists always value health gains or losses, that amounts to about $5 trillion per year in lost life from uh, hammering down on the incentive to innovate in this industry. So that's the first thing I want to say about the act in terms of that people are focused in on the wrong parts of it as opposed to the health impacts. What is the act going to do relative to drugs and drug prices? Specifically, how is this going to put a damper on future innovation, research, development, those sorts of things? What the act does most significantly significantly, is to have Medicare, that is to say the Secretary of Health and Human Services, 
be able to pick the price they want to pay, essentially, with price controls for drugs for the what initially it's a small set of drugs, which is misleading because they they pick them according to overall spending. So they will regulate the blockbusters in the industry. And that will have enormous effects. Uh, it's only 10 to start with, but then it goes up to 25 over time. And it's sort of a legislative slippery slope where more and more drugs are going to be included. The reason that's important is that most of the drugs that go through the FDA process do not make it. About 90% of them fail in the FDA process before they go to market. And therefore, the blockbusters, when you go to market, will have to finance all those failures. So hitting down on blockbusters does not only hit on those drugs, it hits on the whole development process because those the winners in that process is financing all the losers of development. And that's what's poorly understood, I think, when people look at this act. We all, of course, do want affordable drug prices, Thomas, but... If you look at drug prices over the last two, three, four years, have they been rising at the rate of overall inflation, which is well over 9% at this point? Essentially, there's several ways of moderating drug prices. One is through government action, which is the Democrats' favorite tool. Another is through market discipline or competition. And that's what we did during the Trump administration, which, which opened up a lot of the floodgates for generic entry. Generics actually constitute more than 90% of prescriptions, so it's a big deal to have more competition for generics. And you saw then that prices came down for the first time in 46 years during the Trump administration. They have since not increased much, about a couple of percent a year. So it's kind of strange to go after drug price controls to stem inflation. It's a tried-and-fail strategy with the Nixonian price controls, which were a disaster. And it's tried in many countries and failed. Moreover, I think it's important to realize how little pharmaceuticals contribute to overall healthcare costs. So essentially, the research-based pharmaceutical industry, the products they sell, which are called brand-name drugs as opposed to generic drugs, are only 7% of total healthcare spending. Their profits, which the, all the lawmakers yell at, is less than 1% of overall healthcare spending. So this is not a big driver of overall healthcare spending. And many times drugs reduce that spending by replacing more expensive cares. For example, antidepressants many times reduce the need for psychologists or statins, heart disease drugs, many times reduce surgeries for heart attacks, etc. So it turns out that many times when drug spending increases, Overall spending decreases because other types of spending decrease more. If drug prices are then not driving the inflation rate of healthcare, what component of healthcare is causing costs to rise? Well, healthcare, like other industries, is driven by labor costs. So in the U.S., roughly 70% of all our GDP is labor income, so it's spent on labor. And that's true for even more so in in healthcare, where doctors, nurses, and assistants and techs, et cetera, constitute about 75% of cost. So the question is, how do you reduce the prices of labor in this, in this area? Because our doctors, for example, are, are paid a lot more than in other countries. And you do that by essentially increasing the supply of doctors. 
Now, AMA and other organizations restrict that supply heavily. Only one in 10 medical school applicants can actually go to medical school, and that's governed by MDA restraints. But generally, what we want is more free competition on the labor side of healthcare to bring down prices. We have been talking with Thomas Phillipson. He is an economist at the University of Chicago. Thomas previously served as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, in fact, was acting chairman of that board for a couple of years. Thomas, if we have listeners who would like to learn more about this subject, you've written a number of op-eds in major newspapers. Where can they find those op-eds and read more? I post all of what I do in terms of op-eds or TV appearances, etc., on my LinkedIn, which is Thomas without an H, T-O-M-A-S, Philipson, P-H-I-L-I-P-S-O-N. Thomas Phillipson of the University of Chicago. Thomas, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Well, we've had a very interesting week. 87,000 new IRS agents, as well as the raid on Mar-a-Lago. We're going to talk about all those things. Scott, good to have you here. Great to be back, Loman. This so-called Inflation Reduction Act, it is providing for an ungodly number, what, 87,000 new IRS agents. Do you want to talk about what the IRS is really up to here? The Democrats are addicted to confiscating the wealth of the American people. And in the eyes of big government, wealth isn't just millionaires and billionaires and people that have investments and stocks and IRAs and mutual funds and things like that. It's actually everyday people. And 87,000 New IRS agents is an outrageous number of new enforcement officials within the Treasury Department to come after the American people to actually take back more of this money that they feel like isn't being paid correctly. The Congressional Budget Office and Joint Committee on Taxation this week even put out revenue estimates indicating that more than 80% of the revenue collected underneath this audit provision with the new 87,000 IRS agents is going to come from Americans that make less than $200,000. And the bottom line is that's another one of these big broken promises from President Joe Biden that he made repeatedly that any of his tax increases would not affect the middle class. And I know that $200,000 sounds like a lot of money to a lot of people throughout the country, and it is a lot of money. But the bottom line is that this is a provision that's going to affect many, many people making less than $200,000. 80% of the revenue collected through that is from $200,000 or less, and only about 5% is from people making $500,000 or more. So when the government comes, they're coming after us. They're coming after the American way of life. The middle class is the backbone of the U.S. economy. And they feel like they're being cheated out of additional revenue that they should be collecting. So they're going to hire 87,000 Americans to take this enforcement position at the IRS and come after you. What does that exactly mean? How are they going to come after you? Well, the legislation also provides for a clause in a job description saying that these new agents need to be prepared to use high-capacity weapons and to basically use deadly force when they show up at a home trying to complete an audit. And just a couple weeks ago, the same House of Representatives controlled by Nancy Pelosi and the radical left and the socialist squad 
propose banning AR-15s and other rifles that the American people often use for self-defense. So what government is trying to do is the same thing that's been done in many other countries. They want to control the, the population, the mass population, by confiscating our rights, especially the Second Amendment in this instance, and still allowing big government to have that use of force while the American people do not. Speaking of showing up at somebody's home with AR-15s drawn, we had this raid on Mar-a-Lago this past week. Scott, unprecedented action against a former president. Also, Congressman Scott Perry had his cell phone confiscated by the FBI. Is this now an agency out of control? Well, I think it is. And in this instance, you basically have rumors that President Trump took with him when he left the White House some classified information. It may have been communication with other heads of state. It could have been other classified documents. It may have been nothing. And the bottom line is that the director of the FBI and the attorney general have not answered questions, have not held press conferences explaining why the raid was conducted. There has not been transparency with the American people in this instance. And it is a heck of a bold step forward for this administration when they're politicizing our enforcement agencies through the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Department of Justice to go after the last president who's still viewed as a political rival of the current president, because Donald Trump, quite honestly, may announce for 2024 in the near term. And so this raid on Donald Trump and Mar-a-Lago is really an attack on all of of his political base, because what they're trying to do, and they didn't even honestly allow for Trump's lawyers to witness the attempt to gather evidence and reclaim these so-called classified documents. Now, there's been, this week, there's been a a couple of so-called sources, anonymous sources that have indicated well, there were inside informants that knew where the documents were. You know what, Loman? They actually opened up safes and didn't find anything in some of them. They had safe crackers. They went after Donald Trump's records here because all they're doing is a political witch hunt. This week, you know what else happened? Joe Biden and Hunter Biden went on big vacation to South Carolina together. But at the same time, Hunter Biden's underneath federal investigation, and I didn't see a raid on his property. So basically, this is us against them. This is political rivals that are neck and neck, toe to toe against each other. And it's really creating a divisive America. And I'm concerned about that future. This week, there's an organization called the Conservative Action Project. And we issued a a letter calling for the impeachment of the attorney general and the director of the FBI. The bottom line is that when they weaponize and politicize these government agencies and departments, It's not representing a true enforcement of law enforcement. And so we think that those two need to be impeached. Hopefully they just go ahead and resign and let us move on as a country and restore the integrity of the Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Sad to see the weaponization of the Justice Department. We will continue to follow this story as well as the impact of all the taxing and spending going on in Congress with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We've got over 525,000 members from all 50 states within America. That's a little bit more than 87,000 IRS agents. But if you want to become a member for free, check us out at our website, clubforgrowth.org. 
and also on Twitter at Club for Growth. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, as always, thank you for being here. Thank you. Deficit reduction included in the Inflation Reduction Act is dwarfed by the debt piled on by Congress over the past year and a half. We get details now from Eric Bame of Reason Magazine. If the House of Representatives follows the Senate's lead and passes the Inflation Reduction Act, it would become the first major piece of legislation to have even a small positive impact on the federal budget deficit since President Barack Obama was in office. But... Don't go popping those champagne corks just yet. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. We're taking yet another look at another aspect of the Inflation Reduction Act, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, this week. And I know we've covered uh, other aspects of that and we'll cover more of it on the show here today. But it's worth taking a close look, I think, at the deficit reduction aspect of this bill, because that is, at least for, for Senator Joe Manchin, who's one of the key movers and shakers on this piece of legislation, the the deficit angle has been very important. He's been talking about this for months, about how if he was going to support any version of uh, President Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan, which is more or less what has eventually morphed into this bill, that if he was going to support that, he was going to have to see deficit reduction being a significant part of that. And I think for many conservatives and libertarians, that's actually an important thing. Reducing the deficit is something that we should be trying to do in government. And so I am personally, and I think many people listening to this program probably agree with that goal of the legislation. But the question, of course, is whether the the bill itself actually aligns with that goal. We covered this a bit last week. Uh, We're going to get deeper into it here today. Just to back up a second here, the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, won't actually reduce inflation. In fact, it may actually add to inflation by a, a small percentage point or so. That's uh, according to an analysis from the Penn Wharton budget model, but that's really a whole other story. The bill cleared the Senate this week with a 51 to 50 vote. That's uh, Vice President Kamala Harris providing the tiebreaker there. The bill includes a $650 billion corporate tax hike. That's the amount of money that the tax increase will raise over 10 years, and it would direct about $300 billion of that, just about half of that revenue to deficit reduction over the next 10 years as well. But within the context of the federal government's wildly out-of-whack budget, the promised savings from the Inflation Reduction Act are really just minuscule at best, and that's if those savings actually materialize, which uh, they might not. We'll get to that in just a moment. Let's start off with some of the numbers here, though. If you compare the bill's promised deficit reduction efforts to other recent efforts by Congress and the Biden administration to inflate the budget deficit, you can really get a a good sense of comparison here. That $300 billion in savings, in, in deficit savings, that is supposed to be created by this bill, you have to pair that up with the $2.4 trillion that President Joe Biden and this same Congress have added to the 10-year deficit since President Joe Biden took office just about a year and a half ago. That's thanks to things like the American Rescue Plan, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Package, and this year's budget omnibus bill. Now, $300 billion in savings is a lot of money. It sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but it looks a lot smaller when you stack it up against $2.4 trillion. Put it a different way, 
Uh, this is not so much a plan to save $300 billion or to reduce the deficit by $300 billion as it is a plan to actually pay for $300 billion of that $2.4 trillion that Congress has agreed to borrow in the legislation it's passed in the past 18 months. So in short, we would still need seven more bills, just like the Inflation Reduction Act, just to cover the rest of the current borrowing binge that Congress has been on since Biden took office. And that's seven more bills just to cover the last 18 months. That's before we start trying to pay for the rest of the $6 trillion in borrowing that Congress did during the COVID-19 pandemic or all of the previous borrowing that Congress and various presidents from both parties have been doing for years. The actual math is likely to be even bleaker because a good bit of that $300 billion in deficit reduction is really tenuous at best. Much of it won't arrive for several years. And by then, it's likely that future run-of-the-mill spending increases or new borrowing initiatives like uh, perhaps a student loan forgiveness program will have swamped whatever small bits of relief we do get from this bill. For example, if Congress decides to permanently extend the expanded Obamacare subsidies that were created during the pandemic, that would end up costing about half of the supposed savings created by the Inflation Reduction Act. That's according to an analysis by the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And of course, if you want to see the really big picture, you have to stack up this bill's supposed savings against the real drivers of the federal budget deficit, which are things like Social Security and Medicare. Social Security is set to run a $2.5 trillion deficit over the next 10 years. Medicare will run a $500 billion deficit over the same period. Uh, You put that together, that's an additional $3 trillion in deficit spending that's coming in the next decade. That completely swamps the small bit of savings from this bill. Now, yes, $300 billion is a lot of money, and putting any effort towards reducing the deficit is significant. It's, It's important, I think, politically at least, that Congress recognize this as a priority because it's been a long time since we've seen either party in Congress look at the deficit with anything other than disdain or nonchalance. But the problem is that this just absolutely doesn't get you where you need to go. So on one hand, the Inflation Reduction Act does signal, I think, a significant break with recent the recent bipartisan trend of higher spending funded by more borrowing and higher deficits. And in that sense, it is certainly a welcome thing to see. But in the context of America's $30 trillion national debt and the expectation of swelling budget deficits over the next few years, driven primarily by entitlements, this bill is merely a single step, maybe not even a full step, on the road to fiscal responsibility. And there is a long a long way to go. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bam. You can check out more of our coverage of the Inflation Reduction Act and everything else going on in Washington, D.C. this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Media bias has been with us for a long time, but it has gotten worse in recent years, as evident by the lack of coverage of the Hunter Biden laptop controversy. Colin Hanna of Lad Freedom Ring USA talks about it on this American Radio Journal Commentary. Media bias is not a new phenomenon, yet the fact that it's a familiar one shouldn't inure us to its significance or its corrosive effect on our culture. Americans of all political persuasions decry the propaganda spewing forth from the Russian media in their coverage of the war with Ukraine. It's one of the few major current issues that unites us. 
We ask ourselves how long it will take before the Russian people catch on to the fact, the incontrovertible fact, that they are being lied to. How many coffins bringing their children and their neighbors' children back to Russia will it take before they conclude that the war isn't going well? When will they realize that their media are practicing propaganda, not journalism? How many charges of war crimes against their military will slip through Putin's iron clamp on news content? In the darkest days of the Soviet Union, there were radio broadcasts from Radio Free Europe and elsewhere that had a sizable audience and were widely perceived by the Russian people as truthful. With today's Internet and satellite radio, the Russian government's most heavy-handed suppression of outside news cannot succeed even as well as it did in the Soviet days. So, it is reasonable to ask, when will the truth crash through the propagandistic barriers? It must happen. It may happen soon. But eventually, don't we all believe that it will happen? And yet we are nearly blind to biased news coverage in our own country. How long will it take before we conclude that our media are often practicing propaganda, not journalism? One perfect example is the mainstream media's argument for dismissing the validity of the documents from Hunter Biden's laptop. Not only did the Washington Post and the New York Times huffily imply that it could all be fake, maybe even Russia-directed disinformation, they then uncritically endorsed a letter signed by 50 former intelligence community executives who implied, without a single shred of evidence, that the whole laptop episode looked like Russian disinformation. Now, two years later, the Post editorial board asks, Why is confirmation of a story that first surfaced in the fall of 2020 emerging only now? So how does the Post editorial board respond to its own question? By justifying its unbalanced actions two years earlier in spite of the later validation of the laptop's contents, rather than apologizing for its error of judgment. Listen to this drivel, and I quote from the editorial board, there was reason for reluctance on the part of the publications, including the Post. They had been the unwitting tools of a Russian influence campaign in 2016, and it was only prudent to suspect a similar plot lay behind the mysterious appearance of a computer stuffed with juicy documents and conveniently handed over to Rudy Giuliani. Newspapers are supposed to be skeptical about everything as an aid to pursuing the truth, not as an excuse not to pursue the truth. They were unskeptical when the targeted victim was Donald Trump, and they were highly skeptical when the targeted victim was Hunter Biden and, by extension, his father. The Post also repeatedly invoked the word hack, as if unknown persons had posted information of unknown provenance on the web. Holman Jenkins in the Wall Street Journal asserts that filling a laptop drive with hundreds of thousands of fake documents would be ridiculously disproportionate to any aim the Kremlin might hope to achieve. The Kremlin has easier ways to put fake information into circulation. The job of so-called newspapers of record is to establish the truth or falsity of important matters in the public sphere, and whether the laptop was real or not 
certainly qualified. The two most significant trends in the media in the 21st century are the gradual but irreversible decline in newspapers and journalism along with them. The greater loss is the decline in the standards of journalism, as nearly all media, print, online, cable, and broadcast, all drift away from upholding the search for truth and towards partisan or ideological advocacy. The egregious and willful blindness of most media towards investigating Hunter Biden's unethical and potentially illegal business dealings revealed on his laptop is a perfect example of the apparently inexorable trend towards such bias. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WIBW AM and FM in Topeka, Kansas, WYHMAM in Rockwood, Tennessee, along with KORQ FM in Abilene, Texas. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.